you ever just go and like look at your property on google maps and see like oh no they they they, they've updated since i uh, installed that new shed out back (laughs) no no that's the most boring thing i could ever think of doing Matt, what, what's going on this week? I see in the show notes here that I've just opened, uh, by the way, one password for democracy. Would you like to tell me what that's all about? I would. Basically, it's in response to 2018 and how it's kind of been a pretty odd year all around, regardless of, you know, what side you're on or what country you're in. It's uh, It's been an interesting time. And so... We want to offer one password uh, for free to anyone who is helping elections run, basically. So whether you're uh, defending people's digital rights or freedom of speech, or even if you're helping an election run fairly, uh, we want to offer you a one password account to kind of thank you for the essential work that you're doing. But yeah, we, we have a page up. It's uh, onepassword.com forward slash four hyphen democracy. And you, you know, you put your official email address in there and, you know, we, we kind of check out eligibility and stuff. And yeah, we think it's going to make a decent amount of difference. Well, that's very cool, Matt. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to checking that out. Uh, Matt, why don't, we, uh, why don't we switch over to some, some Watchtower Weekly? You know, we don't have uh, anything too crazy to talk about this week. But one of the things that, that came up and that we can certainly touch on a little bit is that uh, Google is shutting down Google Plus. Yeah, it's it's an interesting way to remedy a security flaw. But basically, Google said that Google Plus has low usage and engagement, and that's the ongoing joke with with Google Plus, right? Oh yeah, for sure. Can you remember what their network was called before Google Plus? Was it Google Wave? That's the one. Yeah, and it had like invites. Yeah. And everybody would be clambering for an invite. Yeah. I think I tweeted about, oh, man, I'd really like to get in on that. Wow, that didn't work. Yeah, Google struggles with social networks, I think. And it kind of seems like this might have been an odd way to deal with it, to just shut down the network rather than, like, you know, fixing and apologizing, which is the standard service. Well, I think that, you know, at at a certain point, it's probably the right move for them like they've you know they've got the numbers in terms of engagement they've got the numbers in terms of revenue that this is bringing in for them and maybe it was a very clear-cut decision like it is a lost leader that isn't doing any leading so let's just let's just give it the axe for a time i liked i used google plus and i liked it quite a bit uh especially when i was first getting into photography a little bit more seriously uh there's a large community of photographers and there probably still is on google plus uh that would you know share their artwork and 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 it was really cool to to sort of engage with that community on that platform nobody else was using it though like no outside of that community there wasn't it didn't it didn't migrate to it didn't grow beyond that so i'm not necessarily surprised the interesting thing is that like i think the underestimation when you start a service like this is that you know security costs money yeah there is a reason why you want to kind of separate all your concerns and and things and like one thing that always strikes me when signing up to to something new is how bootstrapped is this startup? They're going to take my information and and not store it correctly because it's cheaper to do that. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, with a lot of sites like that, 
uh, when it comes to sort of doing payment processing or something like that, if I see that there's a PayPal option or an Apple Pay option, I will immediately go with that instead of dumping my credit card in on that page because who knows? Who knows what they're doing to keep that that's information secure? At least PayPal has sort of a proven track record, and this will pass through as a one-time transaction, so there's not a lot of risk there. Yeah, and, uh, you know, Google is obviously ha- has vast resources, even them when they're not looking at something, which is, I would bet, the case here. You know, they've reduced stuff on, on Google Plus to the point where something perhaps has, has happened like that. There was an undisclosed security flaw that exposed users' profile data. And apparently that was remedied in March. I think they've had a, a, a couple of issues and, you know, perhaps closing it down is the right thing to do. Yep. Yeah. Cool. So Matt, what do you want to talk about next? Where should we go from here? So I think we have a question from a user. <laughs> we're we're going to have to cut it down this week uh, to, to one question. Uh, but please do you know, send in more. And uh, what I'm going to try and do this week is, is tweet out the people that we've previously answered and anybody that, that we think is, is perhaps not good radio <laughs> we'll answer those directly on twitter our twitter team does a, a great job of, of answering support questions it's almost all round everyday support on twitter which is awesome i like to joke that the sun never sets on the one password empire and i may have even made that joke <laughs> on this podcast because i say it a lot uh but i think that it's it's really getting to be true we've got great coverage uh yeah because we got people all over the world, so we're we're in good shape. I mean, that said, you know, the, the amount of emails that we are experiencing at the moment is high. So if you have emailed in, you know, we will get there eventually. Yeah, go to the forums. The forums do a couple of things for us. You know, one, we get to answer a question in a public way that other people may also have. So if they come to the forums and, and find a question that you've asked that is their question, they can get their answer right away. And two, uh, we are able to sort of stay more on top of the forums right now because the the traffic is a little bit lower than it is to email. So if you've written into email and you're still waiting around, don't be afraid to hop on the forums and drop us a line and say like, hey, I wrote in, uh, this was my question, what, what can we do? And sometimes it'll help to expedite it. Yeah, and I mean, if that doesn't work, just, you know, email us again. It, it doesn't overwhelm us too much when you when you email in twice but e- even to let us know that it's okay and, and we can close it and you fix the issue is uh is is well worth doing all right so philip writes in and he says it would be cool if we could archive entries like old passports and bank cards i want to keep the information on my expired documents around without being notified about it this is a thing that i sort of I dealt with recently. I had uh, I had you know a bunch of logins and stuff. Is actually it was as I was going and cleaning out my Watchtower warnings in One Password Seven for Mac. I noticed that I had some passwords that had recently become vulnerable, um, and and some other some other issues that I was cleaning up there. And I was like, you know, I don't. Some of these services don't even exist anymore. And I, I would click through to the site to go and like change my password, and it would just it would four oh four or it would go to like a a hosting provider saying this domain is for sale. And I'm like, well, all right. So what I ended up doing was creating a, a vault in uh, my family one password account just called archived items. And I just started dumping stuff in there that that I didn't really need anymore. Now, that's fine. Like, I can then sort of hide that from the the all vaults view. And so it doesn't show up in my day-to-day usage. Uh, But it did make me question a bunch of, like, why do I even care? Like, why do I... Why do I even have these these items around anymore? And I probably could have deleted a lot of them. But there's there's a bit of digital pack rat mentality there around not wanting to to get rid of something. Like, it, it showed some sort of history around, like, where I had been on the internet in 
2005 and stuff like that. So the short answer is like, there's not an official way to do it in terms of like, there's nothing baked into one password that, that allows you to sort of hit archive on an item. Uh, but I, I encourage you to create an archived vault and throw some stuff in there and remove it from all vaults and, and know that you can get back to it at any point, but uh, I won't show up in your, in your day to day. Yeah. The interesting thing is that I do exactly the same. Mine is called the basement. <laughs> nice. And yeah, I just, I remove it from all vaults. I've got stuff in there that, you know, I, I, I've got like old SSH keys and stuff like that, because like, I, I don't know whenever I, I need to reference an old one. Yep. The interesting thing is like, you know, if I'm coming across an old one on the website, like on, on GitHub or something, I, I have a, you know, an old SSH key added and I, I wanted to check that it was old. Like it still comes up in the in the search results if I'm searching that vault. So, it, like, I think it is useful to have these things laying around. Um, I just don't think it's it's useful when they come up in the search for all vaults. Um, so, yeah, like, maybe we've uh, maybe we've struck a chord, and uh, this should be a feature. I think that we could probably do that. I mean, we have just been sitting around bored out of our skulls with nothing to do. <laughs> no. Obviously, features that we discuss on the on the podcast are, are not yet on the roadmap, and the roadmap is already, like, miles and miles long. So right, right. It's not going to get done tomorrow. But it's, it's always interesting, like, what we both do, and as a wider audience, what we do in 1Password in naturally. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of, uh, you remember when retweets started on Twitter? And it, that's a sentence that i can't say and and it and it just happened naturally someone was just like hey i'm gonna retweet this and then someone was like hey that's cool i'm gonna you know copy and paste that and tweet it to someone else right and yeah like i i I wonder what features we would have if we uh discuss the nuances of of how we all use one password there's no way to know this is one of those things that like if we collected data on how people use one password and we don't like that's it's just not something we're ever going to do. We we don't put any sort of analytics in our apps for better or for worse because we don't want to know how people use one password. We don't want to accidentally be sent information we're not supposed to get. But, you know, if we did, we could you know, potentially study for trends like this and say, well, there's a vault that people typically don't have in, in all vaults and a lot of them are called archive like Maybe we should codify that and make that something that is just a new feature. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess what I was getting at is, um, you know, tweet us. If, if this is something that you do is in, and this is something like if this question resonates with you, like uh, get, in, get in touch. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, all right, Matt. Well, I think that we have, uh, it, I think it's guest time. Um, we have a super special guest today i'm a little nervous and starstruck I, mu- I must say yeah when i first spoke to detroit on the phone it was it was in regards to the have i been pwned project and i worked with him and you know if you if you visit have i been pwned um you can see my illustrations that are on there it, it was really great to work with him that's awesome and and now he's going to be on our little podcast i know all right matt i think that uh, at this point we should probably get troy in here for uh, for a little segment what do you say i think that sounds great hey troy welcome to the call hey guys nice to be here yeah it's good to have you this is uh this is continuing a trend an, an upward trend for us now of having special guests on the show that do not actually work at one password uh so the first you know first few we, we had some folks uh internally but uh it, it's great to be able to branch out and i'm very excited that that you're here today 
Oh, awesome. Yeah, look, I appreciate the invite, guys. Thank you. It's a, an upward trend that probably stops here, I'm afraid, because... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Are you telling me that we don't have someone lined up for next time yet? I have not given the next episode a single thought. I'm, I'm pretty terrible at this. <laughs> I do, have, a, however, have some, uh, some great questions lined up uh, for you, Troy. Awesome. Yeah, let's get started. Um, so I guess the best place to start is, is you know, introduce yourself. What are you up to? Uh, what, what should people know about you? Oh, boy. Where do we start? So I'm Troy Hunt, a uh, professional Australian and uh, do security <laughs> things. So I, I'm i probably well known these days for, for creating Have I Been Pwned and running that. Apparently now people know Have I Been Pwned, but they don't know me. So maybe my baby has has surpassed me, <laughs> which is which is okay. I'm cool with that. <laughs> So uh, I do that. I do a lot of uh, speaking at events around the world, a lot of traveling, a lot of training and workshops, a bunch of uh, media sort of thingies related to InfoSec uh, and and a long-term 1Password user as well. Yeah, that's great. I uh, I know we've, we've spoken a bit before about um, Have I Been Pwned and, and how it kind of integrates with 1Password. Uh, with but uh, specifically, what, what I really like about it is most of my... Uh, security conversations you know when you're explaining to someone the basics of internet security and and why they need a tool like one password that kind of generates you know passwords and, and stuff like that why they need that uh, because the the conversation always starts for me is you know you don't need to so much worry about people guessing your password or, or kind of you know working it out it's always the people that kind of already have it mm. and i think have i been pwned uh really helps with that part of the conversation but what i'm interested in is is how, how does your conversation start when educating someone on the basics of, of internet security uh, uh, what kind of point do you bring up what have i been pwned does well you know just for background as well it was credential reuse that was one of the primary catalysts for have i been pwned because i was looking at various data breaches and, and writing uh, sort of analysis on on observable patterns of how people create accounts and passwords and things. And one of the things that sort of struck me was the prevalence of password reuse across multiple breaches. So I'd sort of pull down, a, say, the Sony Pictures data breach and the Gawker data breach, and then you'd find the same email addresses in each. And, you know, like, wouldn't you know it? A bunch of them got the same passwords. So that was sort of what started driving me in this direction to begin with. Uh, and, and then in terms of, of how that then leads to the discussion with people and, and how do I use Have I Been Pwned to demonstrate the problems with that, initially I'd sort of say, you know, look out of the front page, put in your email address, look at all the places you've been exposed. Uh, now you've got to consider every one of those passwords is, is known by some adversary somewhere. And, and usually that alone sort of, you know, really makes pennies drop. More recently though, and this is, when did I launch this? About a year ago, uh, I launched the Pwn Passwords piece, which took passwords from breaches, aggregated them all together and made them searchable. And what that's actually had the, or what that's really done is it's allowed people to sort of go, hey, look, I've got this password, which I think is strong because it's got a number in it, <laughs> you know, and then they put it in there and they go, oh, all right, this password's been seen like, you know, 20,000 times before. And, and that's actually led to another really interesting discussion, which is the one about the, the, the concept of what strength is. And I've had multiple occasions now where someone said, I have a really strong password and I went and put it into the Pwn password service and it came back and said it had been Pwned, but I'm not in any of those data. Well, it wasn't a very good password, was it? <laughs> because someone else had exactly the same one. 
So it's just interesting how the, the the evolution over time has sort of helped demonstrate firstly the the reuse problem and then secondly the strength of individual passwords problem. Yeah, that's that's something that we're constantly trying to improve as well is is you know what what constitutes a decent password and um we've resorted in in certain places to as, as soon as you edit it you know it it just drastically reduces the the strength of it um and that that's quite a, you know an interesting thing to educate people on that you know as, as soon as you start kind of fiddling with this it it doesn't become as random. Well, you know, I think one of the the interesting things, or one of the things that I find most interesting anyway, is how the the view of strength has changed over time. And when we think back to it, you know, if we go back a decade, I don't think there was much much sort of counter opinion to this. But the view was, uh, you've got to have a mix of characters, you know, uppercase, lowercase, and you know, all the other things that we've all seen a gazillion times. And this is what constitutes strength. And and even the password guidance we'd see, it's like, hey, change your E's to threes. It will make it stronger. <laughs> you know, and then then a hacker somewhere read that and spoiled it for the rest of us. <laughs> so so th- this was sort of the the view, and it's really interesting to see how today that view is is has been largely sort of discarded as we've got more and more online accounts and more breaches and all the rest of it. And now we're we're very sort of focused on on other attributes of uniqueness. And I feel that we're kind of in this odd place where we've got the legacy of all those decisions of yesteryear that we're still trying to weed out and move forward into better practices. Yeah, it's it's interesting how the you know how the past kind of uh, is shaping things and 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 you know how slow we're moving just in the requirements for for passwords. But in in terms of the future, what are the the new trends you're seeing in security, and and what should people watch out for? I think one of the, the most interesting trends, and, and this sort of speaks to the the premise we were just discussing, which is how our view of security changes over time. I, I think one of the more interesting trends now is a recognition that there's a much broader fabric of how we do authentication that goes just beyond matching strings. So there, there's a, a a talk that I often do that sort of talks about the history of passwords. And it starts with uh, MIT in the 60s and there's this like massive, you know, room full of computer in this black and white photo. And and this was the first ever instance of a password on a computer. Uh, And you look at that and you sort of go, okay, well, you know, like who who are our threat actors? Well, people with physical access that know how to use the machine. You know, like your, your landscape of attackers was very, very small. Uh, and you go forward a couple of decades and now we start to get into connected systems, but you've, you've sort of got tens of thousands of people globally that know how to use these things. You've still got a very, very sort of small footprint in terms of risks. And it was really another couple of decades later, once we're into the internet era, where we have so many connected systems and so many people creating accounts and you've got this massive attack landscape. And it's curious to look at how things have changed because back in the 60s, the the way you would authenticate is you'd have two strings in your head, the username and the password, and if they match the two strings in the system, then that's it. You're good to go. And there are still plenty of systems today that do that. But think about some of the other mechanisms that we now have available for authentication. So, yeah, we've got everything from two-factor authentication to hard tokens. I'm just going through a a process now with um, YubiKeys and NFC bits and pieces to to strengthen up some of my own accounts. We really didn't have ready access to those even a decade ago. We've got user behavioral analytics in terms of what is a normal process for login, where do you normally come from, what browser do you normally use, what are your practices once you're authentic. We've got gradients of authentication. Our confidence level is only here, so you can only do that, as opposed to our confidence level is much higher, so you can do everything. 
So we've got a heap of different things available to us now. And I think the interesting trend here is that as we have better ways of both authenticating and then controlling access once authenticated, we can start to kill off some of the other stuff that got in the way. Uh, So the arbitrary password requirements we just discussed was one of them. The other guidance we've seen from the likes of the NCSC in the UK and and also from NIST recently is is to try and move away from mandated password rotation. And, And I think what's really interesting here is that we're starting to get a recognition of the human element in security and the way people operate with systems. And we're moving away from just this sort of clinical mathematical look. Uh, and what I mean by that is that, you know, you, you can't argue the mathematics of the more characters you have and the more character types you have, the greater entropy you have. I mean, all of that's immutable science. Uh, but none of that really recognized the fact that people do stupid things. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and now we're starting to get a better idea of what that looks like and adapt accordingly. Yeah, that's I mean, that's opened my eyes uh, incredibly wide. Um and, and considering it's, you know, 10 past eight in the morning there, uh, that was incredibly well said. Well, actually, 10 past seven. Thank you. We uh, we don't get daylight savings here because uh, it confuses the cows, apparently. <laughs> 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 it, it confuses the Brits as well, I wouldn't worry. Uh, so, so one of the newer parts of all these information breaches is, um, it, is information that you kind of might not be able to change, uh, like your phone number or, or like your address. How, I mean, we, we don't really have much in the way of protecting ourselves against that type of data being made available at the moment. But, I mean, how, how do you think that sort of thing might change in the future? Well, I, I thought where you were going there actually was more around the kind of static KBA kinds of data. Uh, and, and this is what uh, ended up with me in Congress last year talking about the, the exposure of things like your birth date. Uh, it, it is immutable data. Uh, it, it is static. Once it is exposed, then it's exposed forever. Yet we consistently use this as a knowledge-based authentication question. Uh, and and the, the discussion in, in Washington was, you know, how are we going to do authentication in an era when so much information that was previously used for KBA is now in the public domain? And, and to be clear, it's not just in the public domain from data breaches either. It's in the public domain because people willingly put it there. You know, they publicly state their birth date, for example. Uh, and in fairness, you should be able to do that because I get that people like cake and parties and things like that like you should be able to share your birthday (laughs) but uh, in in a world where we do that more regularly then using that as some sort of a secret obviously doesn't make sense anymore what's really interesting now is is to look at why that still exists and how we get away from it and and the thing about why it still exists is, is really the reason passwords still exist which is that it's like the one thing that everyone understands how to use. You know, I, I get this all the time. Like, when are passwords going to die? It's like, well, they're, they're not. <laughs> not. Not within any foreseeable future. Because as bad as they are in terms of security, the one thing that you just cannot beat them on is usability because everyone knows how to use it. So for a KBA question like, what is your date of birth? Everyone knows the answer to it. So I don't see that going away anytime soon. Uh, and instead, we have to sort of fall back to some of those other authentication methods that we, we just started to touch on, uh, which might be everything from everyone's got a supercomputer in their hand these days, or, or certainly people in, in our parts of the world do. Uh, and yeah, even in, in countries where there, there's less propensity for things like smart devices, uh, just about everyone has a phone that can get an SMS. So, so we've got other means of of helping to increase the confidence in identity as part of a verification process these days than those classic sort of KBA questions. Yeah, that, that's that's fascinating. I, I know 
one thing that that we do to get around that type of thing is is suggest that people generate passwords for security questions and and you know things that your bank might ask you over the phone i mean my my bank asks me some stupid questions over the phone <laughs> you know I, I always end up reading out these phonetic uh based passwords cuz you know i i generated them Back in one password five or six, uh, we had a phonetic password generator, so you could kind of read them out over the phone, but you sounded like you were speaking a different language. Yeah, yeah. I, I always like that, you know, that those kind of generated answers. Yeah, that I mean that that's been fascinating. Um, have you got any other questions that you you know you'd kind of like to, to topics to talk on? You know what I normally get, particularly when it's any sort of media stuff that's facing the the masses is, is people always want to know like what should people do to protect themselves online and it's it, it's things that I, I think this audience is probably all pretty familiar with so get yourself a password manager uh obviously uniqueness and strength is really important there the the 2fa thing i, I think is a bit paradoxical I, I really like the idea of second layers of authentication but I kind of feel that particularly in the security industry, we sometimes lose sight a little bit about the challenges that that poses. So one good example there is that uh, 2FA is meant to be a second factor in addition to the first. Uh, I've had discussions with people. I'll give you a really good example here, actually. GitHub now implements Have I Been Pwned's Pwned Password. So if ever you sign into GitHub with a password that's been seen before, they give you a big warning message and say, hey, you're using a password that's in Have I Been Pwned. You really don't want to do this. And I I had someone... Uh, in a closed forum I'm, I'm a part of recently say, yeah, this sucks. It's really annoying. I should be the one who decides how strong my password should be. Besides, I've got 2FA. And I'm like, well, the, the whole idea of 2FA is it's like first you have 1FA and then you have another FA. So now you have 2FA. And what you've done is like you had one <clears throat> and, and then you've made it weaker. So now you've got like a half FA and then you've got the other. So really you got one and a half FA. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> 2FA is not an excuse to take shortcuts with the first factor. It's meant to be an additional layer. Uh, you know, it's, it's not meant to be like, let's just go backwards with the first one. And if you're using a password manager, this wouldn't be a problem anyway, so get your act together. <laughs> so, you know, I think that's, that's sort of part of the challenge. And another interesting aspect on this is the usability barrier of 2FA. And I'm sure some people are going, well, you know, what do you mean? It's that you have a soft token or a YubiKey or, or an SMS, worst case scenario. Uh, you know, like, how is that hard? You try and explain 2FA to someone who is non-technical, get them set up and then help them log back in later on. And it is a freaking nightmare. It really can be absolutely painful. And I, I say this the day after having gone through an account recovery with a relative, which was n- not much fun at all. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's because of that that we see really low adoption rates. Uh, so, you know, a great example here is that we have seen adoption rates of 2FA on Dropbox of about 1% percent of the audience and i did speak to someone at dropbox recently and i said well you know like why aren't you guys driving this and they said well the the problem we've got is that people lose their authenticator app they lose their recovery codes and then they come to us and say hey i turned on 2fa so that if someone has only my username and my password they couldn't get in i've only got my username and my password can you let me in (laughs) 
you know, I was like, well, you, you're like literally asking us to do the thing you asked us not to do in a case that someone claiming to be me came back wanting this. So it's it's a very, very imperfect thing at the moment. It's We should use it. I just lament the fact that it is such a blunt instrument. Yeah, that, that's very true. And, and a lot of these services are usually pretty quick to turn it off for you, um, which is, you know, it's disappointing. I mean, the, the, you're right. This is quite a challenge now, right? And, and I, I put myself both in the position of the person who's been locked out and the service itself. So, one of the things that I've been surprised with as I've been, you know, of course, the tech support for for family members and such is finding coming across their computer, um, whether through screen sharing or, or some other means, and finding that they have two factor authentication turned on for, in particular, their Apple ID, mm. and that they just they very naturally use it and. It, like I, I was on, I was helping my brother with something the other day, and and we had to log into his Apple ID, and he went. Uh, I watched him, you know, use one password to put his, his username and password in, and then uh, the system authentication came up and said, "It looks like someone is trying to log into your computer from this location. Do you want to uh, confirm or, or deny?" And he said, "Confirm," and the six-digit code came up, and he typed it in, and was fine. It didn't even it didn't even occur to him that that was awkward, and so. There's definitely improvements that can be made in that area to make it user-friendly. And the reason that Apple has been able to be successful with it to the point where like non-techie people that I haven't helped set it up have set it up themselves is that they control that whole ecosystem, right? They have this notion of trusted devices within your circle of trusted devices that can then become your authenticators for everything else. So that it's very, once you add more than one device to that, it becomes very rare that you're going to lose your authenticator because you, you probably always have it with you. Well, that, that's the thing. I mean, Apple sells very good 2FA devices, which they call iPhones, <laughs> you know, like you, you, and they're valuable too, right? And you always have them with you and you have services to actually locate them if you lose it. And, uh, and you know, I, I think combine that with the fact that Apple is a very usability focused company as well means that, uh, as I understand it, they've got probably the highest rate of 2 adoption out of anyone. I, th- I think they're sort of well over two-thirds or, or somewhere thereabouts, but they've, they've had massive success with that. Yeah, that's incredible. Perfect. So uh, I, I think we can move on to the final part of the show, which the guest doesn't normally join us. So this is like, you know, this is a new new trend that we're setting up. But um, yeah, this is unprecedented. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I've been given a list of, of uh, place names from, from Troy. Uh, and I, I've selected my favorite, which I, I think is easy to say, um, but I, I very much enjoy it anyway. And I'm just going to drop it into the chat. Uh, so, I, I mean, Rue, if you go first, I'll go second. And then, uh, Troy, I, I think you can, uh, you can tell us what it really is. So this isn't fair because you've seen it way ahead of time. You, you've had time to prepare. I don't think it's meant to be fair. It's meant to be fun. so troy the way this usually works is that someone provides a a place name that ostensibly is difficult to pronounce or potentially difficult uh the other person has to attempt to pronounce it and then come up with a backstory for how it got its name so in the case of 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 here um it's it was it was really uh as many great games of telephone begin of someone saying saying you know the word wool and the other person got a little garbled, and they came back, and they said, Wooloo? And they said, no, 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 no. 
wool. And they said, oh, Woolamulu. And I said, no, just wool. Yeah, that's what I said, Woolamulu. And then it got named that. For I don't know how that part of it happened. I'm assuming that the person actually writing the, the place name on the form where they fill out all the place names was, was on the other end of the garbled telephone line. So that's, I mean, it's a terrible story for, for why this has happened. But Matt, what do you what do you think this is? Uh, I mean, I'm going to go Woolamulu. Because there's definitely a, a double double L in there, yeah. Wulu Mulu, but it, then thinking about like the Australian pronunciation. Oh, please attempt an Australian accent, Matt. Please, I, I am. I'm not going to do that. That's a terrible idea. <laughs> uh, I, I think there's probably an uh in there somewhere. So it's like Wula. Like, like there's no A, but. There's probably an A in there somewhere. Troy, please save us. Save us for, from ourselves here. Yeah, put us out of our misery. <laughs> so I know it was like one of the weirder ones. So I, I, I sent Matt a, a list of, uh, I just did a Google, found a website of weird Australian names, sending the list. Uh, and this looks like one of the weirder ones, but it's, it's one of the most common ones because it is actually a place in Sydney and it, it's Woolloomooloo. Uh, and that's... You know, like Australians, I guess, we would normally abbreviate everything. So this is a little bit of an odd one for us. <laughs> but I, I think, I think, Rue, you probably got the best pronunciation the second time. The first time, I thought there might have been an extra vowel in there somewhere. But uh, yeah, Woolamaloo, Sydney. It's probably true. I told you. I told you there's an A in there. Woolamaloo. Yeah, you're right. And I, I was also putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable. So it was all, it was all sorts of wrong. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for joining us today, Troy. Yeah, thank you, Troy. This has been great. No worries, guys. Thank you very much. All right, Matt. I think that we've done the Lord's work today. (laughs) We should probably go. (laughs) I I do not think we have, but okay. (laughs) All right. Love you, Ruth. I love you too, Matt. Bye. Bye. Bye.